Welcome to Voices, Then and Now, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast that features first-hand experiences from Dana-Farber patients. In this episode, we'll hear Ben Blaisdell recount his experience being diagnosed with leukemia at 16 and catch up with him to see how life has changed since then. I woke up to the ringing alarms of my pulse meter and respirator. They quickly reminded me of the deteriorating shape I was in. My parents, sister, and all my doctors were crowded around me, looking at my blank face for answers. I thought they were supposed to be the ones with the answers. My chest raised and lowered as I gasped for air. Suddenly, breathing had become a voluntary motion. My head spun like a top, worsening my confusion. My hands were cemented solid by sweat. My legs, frozen blocks of ice. I kept thinking I was dying. Instinctively, I brought a smile to my face, staring blankly at my doctor's faces. And that simple act of smiling helped me shed my fear, fear of dying, fear of things out of my control. I found the act freed me from my virtual hell. I knew from then on I would be all right. I had confidence in my spirit. On August 4th, 1994, when I was 16, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, a blood cancer, otherwise known as ALL. Throughout my journey, I lost all that was once precious to me, but at the same time gained a greater sense of priorities. I learned to value good attitude instead of a good appearance, and most importantly, I learned to love life. It all started with a simple case of the chills. I had been out with my friends, indulging in my favorite passions, the freedom of sailing and the glory of summer. For the second time in a week, the chills, despite the warm air, gave me a sign it was time to head in for the night and to see a doctor. The next day, I headed to the hospital, expecting medicine to fight an infection I must have picked up. Instead of the prescription, I got a handshake from the doctor who said, I see nothing wrong with you. But as he shook my hand, he paused, held on to it carefully, and examined the color, the color of my hands. Where his hands were pink, mine were a pale yellow. He followed up with some blood tests, which showed I was extremely anemic. At that point, I had only heard the word in a Nirvana song. I never knew it would change my life. That day, as my mother drove me to the pediatrician's office, we didn't say a word to each other, careful not to make the other afraid. But her expression revealed her worry, and I'm sure mine did too. My doctors looked at us with little emotion as he explained what anemia was and what it could result in. My mother asked, will this interfere with our vacation? He responded with the words I'll never forget. Penny, for the next two years, your life will be on hold. And he was right. Our next stop was the hospital where, unbeknownst to us, I would spend the next month of my life. I was terrified after meeting my oncologist for the first time. I knew what an oncologist did, and worse, I knew the type of patients they dealt with, the really sick-looking kids in the Jimmy Fund ads. Dr. Wong quietly and compassionately delivered my sentence. Ben, we believe it's cancer. And these words immediately stole my innocence. I tried to ask him questions about my illness, but the words slurred as they came to my tongue and passed my lips. A girlfriend called me when I was at the hospital wondering why I was there. As the word cancer went from my mouth to her ears, we simultaneously started to cry. The only time I've ever cried for something that was so important that truly hurt. I soon grew accustomed to a new routine, waking up every day at 5 a.m. on the dot to take my morning pills. My mom, who has always treated me like an adult when I was a child, now switched gears and was treating me like a baby. But I knew it was for my own good. I can't imagine trusting anyone else with my life. Her positive attitude and the laughs we shared helped me through my fight. If I got depressed, I worried my parents would get depressed, so I kept the attitude that everything happens for a reason. When I was crippled for a month after the bones in my knees had decayed, I stayed positive and assured my friends and family that I would survive, and I did. Before I heard the L word, leukemia, for the first time, I had been an active and popular teenager, but I had never truly appreciated my friends, girlfriends, and great parents. 
During treatment, my head resembled a bowling ball and my muscles withered and I didn't have a hair on my body, but I still had my friends and most importantly, I still had my family. From my adventure, I gained great gifts, a love of living and a respect for all living beings. I learned that every person had redeeming traits and tried from then on not to judge on first impressions and instead to find the good in everyone. I had an experience that many people won't and shouldn't have, but in my case, I was thankful for all that it taught me. It was a long journey of self-realization and I returned at the end in a form I scarcely recognized. My appearance, which I once took great pride in, had quickly lost its significance. My inner strength, now what I most respected, had gained sovereignty over my outer shell. That was Ben Blaisdell, sharing his experience being diagnosed with leukemia as a teenager and what he learned from it. Now in his 30s, Ben is joined by his mother, Penny, to discuss the role cancer has played in both of their lives, how Ben is doing today, and what advice he has for other patients. Boy, Ben, I certainly do remember sharing the experience of you writing your college application essay when you were in active treatment. It still makes me cry. You've grown up so much faster than so many other boys, men your age. What do you think about all this when it happened to you and, and how it affected you at that time? It certainly was a tough part in my life um, because, number one, I have the stress of going to college. Um, so you got to write, write college applications. You have all the stress that a typical teenager has. But in the same sense, too, I'm still trying to figure out, am I going to be able to get to school that day? Will I be able to drive? Um, when I get to school, are people still going to look at me funny because I don't have any hair? There's all these other complications that surround you when you have cancer. Uh, but cancer doesn't care. It just you, you do what you do. But I'd say, like, when I was writing this, uh, number one, I don't like to write that much to begin with. I'm not much of a writer. But this is something I really like. I wanted to sink myself into because in writing it, putting things on paper, I think it helped me a lot to better understand what I was doing and where I'd come from. When I finished this, I was kind of at that point where I knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel, though, and I knew that, that cancer was going to end at some point in my life. So I, I, I remember somewhat of a feeling of elation here. This was, I don't know if it was a cornerstone or a capstone or whatever you want to call it, but it was one of those things that I knew this was going to help me to bring at least a little bit of closure or help to bring a little sense to what, what I'd been doing for the last few years. Yeah, well, I, I certainly empathized to some extent, but you can never do that when you're a parent uh, of a teenager. I know for me, what sort of helped me and my husband and our daughter try to understand what was going on with Ben was his readings. You know, how, how is he doing today? How is he mentally acting? How is he physically acting? How is he emotionally acting? His positive attitude and, and the feeling that he was going to be okay and that, you know, even though there was pain and he had to give himself shots every day, he was going to be okay and it was just a matter of time when this would all be past history. The other thing was his friends. I mean, they flocked around him. His hospital room over at uh, Children's was filled. But the other salvation, I think, was the Jimmy Fun, the feeling of going home when he had to go in for treatment and, and telling us this can be cured. It's just going to be a very hard time for the next couple of years. And I will never forget the nurse practitioner, Andy Andrakaitis, who still is there today. And she was like my sister. She was like my mother. She was like my therapist. I think she recognized my call every Monday morning when I would call about a question. But that's what helped me work through it with you. Now I'm in a place where I have three kids of my own. And I think about that, like, what would have it been like if this happened to Eloise or one of my kids? And 
how would have I dealt with that? And I think about that now and it's just, I don't know how you did it. I mean, and, and it's like, it's a shocking thing for me because that must have been really, really hard. Maybe even harder than what I was going through. The thought of that, uh, it, it puts it all in a very different light, I think, to me now. Life changed for all of us during that time. And, and I can look back and think, you know, of all the positive things that did come out of that. I remember um, Betsy, our, our daughter, she was really upset when you got sick. And until she had her own child, and the first thing she said to me when she saw me, she says, Mom, I now understand what it's like to be a parent. And the thought of losing a child has to be one of the worst things you can possibly imagine. I said, yeah, but you just dig your heels in, you get control, you find out everything there is about that illness, you have great communication with the, with the doctors, you become their advocate, and some inner strength comes in that helps you get through all that. I remember when you went off to school, it was really hard for, for us to have you go away because we had such a watchful eye on you, and then all of a sudden, you're gone. You're gone to school. And it was certainly a big change for you, too. <laughs> yeah, it was a very interesting time in my life. We packed up the car, and um, literally two days later, I had to move everything into this room. I came in halfway through the year. I didn't want to fall behind, so I, I wanted the be as much as I possibly can to just to move on with my life, and coming into college halfway through the year is not a, an easy thing to do. Luckily, I was, very, I think, very well prepared for school, but I'd say that my biggest thing when I, when I went off to school was Everybody was starting partying and you know doing all the stuff they did in college. It was so beyond me at that point. I mean, granted, I had done a lot of that stuff when I was younger anyway, but it was just one of those things that I'd grown out of that already. And I, I was tired of it and I was, I was just trying to work, but at the same time, you want to feel accepted and you want to be around people. I immediately aged coming out of cancer treatment by at least four to five years, at least maturity-wise, trying to manage that in a time when people were just trying to fit in. It's tough. I think it was really, really tough. I remember you going through that and deciding to come back to Boston because you felt like Boston was home. You had your apartment. You had grown so much past that particular time in your life. And all of a sudden, cancer just sort of faded out of the picture, and it was not even part of the discussion. It took me a while to forget that. I remember my husband telling me, hey, it's over. Let's get back with our lives and forget that as much as you can and let's move on. And that gave me the opportunity to rethink what was important to me. And that's when I started getting involved with Dana-Farber and patient advocacy, which probably would never would have happened if I hadn't dealt with you. Was there anything you would change? As far as treatment, everything along those lines, it's hard for me to want to change anything because, number one, it worked. The fact that I am still cancer-free to this date makes me not want to do a thing. Now, with that said, did we learn a lot when we went through it? Absolutely. I don't work that well with steroids. We know that much. <laughs> you know, there are certain things that could have made my life easier going through it now. But in the same sense, too, number one, I wouldn't want to alter what the outcome would be. But number two, I think it created some little intestinal fortitude, and I think I'm a different person for the wide array of uh, side effects that I had. You know, for example, when I was taking steroids, I had this insatiable appetite, and I used to watch cooking shows constantly. I, my mom would literally, <laughs> would literally watch me as I'd salivate when I'm watching these cooking shows, because I was constantly hungry, and I put on a lot of weight. 
part of me is like, well, I kind of want to wish away the steroids because of all the other bad side effects, but in the same sense, I love cooking now. I have a great, I think, sense for flavor, and it's a part of my life that I never had until I was 16 years old. And maybe that would have happened anyway, but I definitely, that accelerated things without a doubt. So it's hard for me to say that I'd really want to change anything. If I had the option of not doing cancer, let's just say that there's some magical way that I didn't have to do it, I still would have done it though. Wow. I think about this a lot because, I mean, getting that maturity force-fed to me, I think was a great thing. And not to mention just the different appreciation for things that I, I gained just going through cancer treatments. That was a really, really, I'd say, big part of my life. And I'd say probably most importantly is obviously my relationship with you and, and my sister and who you knew we, we fought with like cats and dogs for many, many years. What would you say to other parents that are going through the same type of thing that you're going through right now? You were 16 when you were diagnosed, going through puberty, and so obviously you were growing, and the steroids certainly didn't help in terms of bone loss and what have you. Not anything that you could really change, but that had to be watched pretty carefully. The other thing, being 16, was my concern about your fertility. Would Ben be able to, after the, all this horrible chemotherapy, be able to have children? And nobody can really then address it. So we had to sort of find this sperm bank, go through a process before he could start treatment and he really needed to be on treatment. And, and you were great about that too. I mean, that was one of the, you pushed that, yep. I mean, from day one. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is the last thing I want to think about is, you know, figuring out what to do with my sperm at 16 years old. But I'm so happy that you did. And <laughs> thankfully, we haven't had to use it. And we've had, you know, three kids. Another piece of advice I would definitely recommend is making sure that the Jimmy Fund and your primary care are in touch with each other. They kept in touch until Ben was probably in his 20s <laughs> and he switched from a pediatrician. So I highly recommend that communication. But like everything, you as the parent, as well as the patient, have to be your own advocate. You've got to follow up on things that don't seem right. It's your job. If you do it, you're going to have a much more, I believe, successful outcome. The only other thing I would give as far as advice to parents is, and I was really bad at this, I hovered. So you've got to find that right balance of being their advocate, but not also interfering with their life and being the downer. You've got to keep that positive attitude up. That was a coping mechanism for you. I mean, this is how you could feel like you're in control of something you really didn't have control of. Everyone's experience is going to be completely different. Everyone's going to deal with things in, in a very, very different way. And, and just because my coping mechanism, which I, I talked about in my essay, was smiling and trying to keep a good attitude, that's just not going to be, you can't tell somebody to have a good attitude. It was just something that I discovered and it worked for me. It's tough to give advice in this. For me, it, it has been a very positive thing because Ben was such a simple kid to grow up and I almost feel like I didn't really have a chance to know him until he got sick and I could really help him because he really didn't need my help until then. And then it also you know, gave me a chance to reinvent myself as a patient advocate. That would have never happened if this hadn't all happened. Having gone through it makes you the best advocate you know, anybody could possibly ask for. Thank you for listening to Voices, Then and Now, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. For more episodes of Voices and to learn more about other Dana-Farber podcasts, visit danafarber.org slash podcasts.